Hey, it's Larry. Uh, Thanks for listening. Happy New Year. Real quick, before we get into this episode, I had such an amazing, eye-opening, life-changing experience at the World Parkinson Congress in Kyoto that I want others to have that opportunity, too. So Becca Miller and I and 24 of our PD community friends have launched a year-long WPC Travel Grant Fundraiser. We're each doing a two-week Facebook fundraiser. Mine's underway right now because my birthday's January 9th. All the money raised will be used to help offset travel costs so more people with young-onset Parkinson's can attend the next WPC in Barcelona in 2022. You can search out details on the When Life Gives You Parkinson's Facebook page or donate directly to the WPC website. Go to wpc2022.org slash yopdfund. If you or your business would like to supply matching funds... Hey, good on you. Email me at parkinsonspot at curiouscast.ca. And now, on with the show. It's time for another extra dosage episode of When Life Gives You Parkinson's. I'm Larry Gifford. And I'm Nikki Reitmeyer. Extra dosage episodes are those in-between bits. You know, special bonus content to get you through until the next full episode. Nikki, in the last episode about working with Parkinson's, we heard a little bit from Dr. Robert Duff. He's a neuropsychologist. Ooh, fancy. Yes, very fancy. <laughs> he's also the host of the Hardcore Self-Help Podcast. He's the author of the Hardcore Self-Help Book Series. And he knows about Parkinson's? Sure, yeah, absolutely. And you're going to learn a lot. We get into psych assessment, counseling, cognitive impairment, and why it's important for people with Parkinson's to pick up a new hobby. Oh. I started by asking him, what is neuropsychology? <laughs> At least in the U.S., a psychologist is somebody who has a doctorate-level degree in psychology. Um, they can do a variety of different things. Um, I myself, in addition to neuropsychology, I do like therapy, like psychotherapy, mm-hmm. talk therapy. Um, not all psychologists do, though. Some just prefer to teach. Some do research. You can do all sorts of different things. So neuropsychology is a subfield within psychology. So you get your degree in psychology, and then you do some additional training in this field, which is basically looking at people's thinking skills. So looking at how the brain is working, um, behaviors too, stuff like that. And a lot of it has to do with doing assessments of people to see where their thinking skills fall in relation to their peers. So looking at things like memory, but things like language as well, um, processing speed, how somebody is organizing themselves, all sorts of different stuff like that. And all those different skills roughly mapped to a certain area of the brain. And this can help us uh, guide treatment for neurological issues like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's disease. It can also help us understand maybe the effects of a brain injury someone had in a car crash. Uh, All sorts of things can affect someone's thinking skills. Actually, a, a really frequent question that I get is, is this just depression? Because really bad depression can make you have a hard time with your memory and how quickly you're thinking, or is it something like a dementia condition? So right. uh, yeah, primarily for a neuropsychologist, you're going to be doing a lot of testing, a lot of interpreting of test results and, and giving people feedback about how they did on that. Uh, often, you know, also doing presentations for, for organizations about, you know, how the brain works, aging, things of that sort. And, and do you, do you work regularly with people with movement disorder? I do. Uh, uh, very often Parkinson's. So uh, not all neuropsychologists do. Um, it is common for someone with, with a movement disorder to get a neuropsych assessment. Um, but I, in particular, one day a week I work actually at a neurologist's office and he's a special specialist in movement disorders. So yeah, I see Parkinson's and then a lot of um, Parkinson's plus conditions. So things like um, Lewy body disease or 
progressive super nuclear palsy, all that other fun stuff that can come along with, you know, the Parkinson's symptoms. You, you say fun, I say horror. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Those are, I mean, Parkinson's is bad. All these other Parkinson's plus conditions are bad in extra ways. So yeah, they're, they're horrible. <laughs> Your experience with Parkinson's, what, what's that been like? Well, you know, my, I haven't had a lot of, I had not had a lot of personal experience with Parkinson's prior to getting into the field. Um, since then, you know, I've, I've basically every week I'm seeing at, at least one to two people who have some sort of Parkinsonian condition, or at least that's a, that's a question there. And, you know, my experience of it is it looks different for everybody. It looks very different for everybody. I am always surprised by things that sort of fall under the Parkinson's umbrella. You know, somebody who says, well, um, my my skin stopped producing a lot of natural like lubrication so I'm dry all the time and that might be a parkinsonian symptom because of the way the you know the the body's reacting um so it, seeing how it presents differently for everybody is is something that's been really interesting for me um and just seeing how people take it in stride you know there's there's as I've been working with people there have been more and more interesting ways of trying to cope with it. Things from like uh, the, the neuro boxing class that they have over here where people are doing boxing to, to get some aggressive exercise. And that seems to be helpful to, you know, uh, music therapies and all sorts of interesting stuff. It's a, um, it's an interesting condition because it's not the same as say Alzheimer's disease where you have this fairly short time window, all things considered. And there's a really, uh, I wouldn't say predictable, but, you know, we know things are going to progress and get worse and worse and worse. And a person's going to have a really hard time in a relatively short amount of time. With Parkinson's, it's so variable. You know, I've known people who have had Parkinson's for years and years and years and years. And their progression is just so slow that they have a really good quality of life. Other people, it's a little more fast and furious, you know. So just the individual differences are are really interesting to me. Yeah, and that's really one of the the mental... Uh, blocks that I have. Mm-hmm. One of the things I wrestle with is like, yeah, I know I'm not going to die from Parkinson's, but it's like it's like death of a thousand cuts because every time you turn around, you you lose the ability to do this, or you lose the confidence to do that, or something else is triggered, and it's like, man, if if it's going to be like this for the next twenty years, like I almost would rather say it's going to kill you in five, and let me make the most of those five. That's a good point. You know, I mean, I think that's the difference between in, in my field. We talk, you know, obviously about a lot of different mental disorders and there are certain types of mental health issues or neurological issues that have like a sort of the more severe and what a lot of people would call the less severe version. So take autism, for instance, people with autism spectrum disorders, people who would be identified with Asperger's, um, they would consider that higher functioning uh, by in some ways. And people will say, well, it's a less severe form of autism. No, it's not. It's not less severe. It's just different, you know, and uh, same for like bipolar one versus bipolar two. Just because something isn't as uh, hard hitting doesn't mean it's easier. So I I definitely hear what you're saying that, you know, it it would almost be easier sometimes to just know what the heck you're dealing with. And when you talk about you talked about, uh, you know, this isn't going to kill me. Well, there's a lot of different types of death, you know, And, and I think one thing that you deal with and anybody who is living with Parkinson's deals with is the constant death of what they expected. You know, you expected your life to go a certain way in so many different domains, whether it comes to how you interact with your family, how you participate in sports, if that's something you're into, how your mind is working, you know, these things that you've counted on, you have to let that expectation die in all these different ways and adjust to what is going to be happening. That's different than that. Yeah. My wife and I talk about mourning our pre Parkinson's life. 
Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. The morning, the morning process is real. And it's, and that's another thing that's going to look different for everybody. I mean, it's normal to be pissed off about that. It's normal to be confused by it. It's normal to be in denial. The fact that like anything will change, um, all those changes of grief, they happen too with, with grieving a life that isn't going to be the same. One of the fears that I had initially, and I suppose it's still there somewhat, uh, you know, and I suppose it probably with a lot of people with a degenerative brain disorder is the fear that my cognitive abilities are going to be attacked or, and wane. Yeah. Uh, cognitive impairment doesn't happen to everybody with Parkinson's. No. Uh, in, in the cognitive changes interact with everything else too, to be clear, you know, like, um, especially someone's getting older, there might be things like hearing loss that start to take effect. Mm. And, um, obviously with Parkinson's, you have physical issues. So, when you're trying to, pl- if you're doing a project, say you're trying to build a model or something that's that has some fine motor control, that has some planning to it, maybe the slowing down in your thinking will get in the way, but that's going to be sort of amplified by the fact that it also takes more effort to do everything. <laughs> yes. So it's going to be more exhausting. It's going to be, it's going to take special planning to make sure you're not going to accidentally throw a piece down a, you know, down a garbage disposal or something, whatever <laughs> it is. You got to put more effort and thought into that. So they, they definitely interact. When should somebody with Parkinson's seek out psychological help so that's a good question so i mean um there's a difference in in what we're talking about here between like psychological and then neuropsychological like we had talked about with the with the testing first step is i think that anybody who has parkinson's should make sure that they're seeing a neurologist um interestingly enough a lot of people don't uh you'll you'll find out that somebody kind of got a casual diagnosis of parkinson's from their primary care physician and then kind of just left it at that uh, there's a lot more to Parkinson's than just, you know, checking off the boxes and saying, okay, well, here's some, you know, a dop- dopamine medication and try to live a good life. Uh, a neurologist is a brain doctor. They're a medical doctor that focuses on the brain. It can be confusing because there's a neurologist and a neuropsychologist we're talking about here. The neurologist is the MD, the medical doctor. Neuropsychologist is me, the psychologist, the, the PhD that focuses on the brain. But the neurologist, the medical doctor will be the one to do, you know, more extensive brain imaging to, you know, look at what your symptoms are, do all the physical tests that come along with Parkinson's, lab work, really put all the pieces together to determine, is it Parkinson's that you're looking at or is it some other disorder? And what are the best courses as to as to what to do about it? So in that process of that initial neurological evaluation, very often that's when I will encounter somebody. I'll be part of that whole puzzle. So the, this person's going to have their first meeting with the neurologist. Then they're going to get sent for brain scans, lab work, and testing with me. Then the neurologist will be the point person that pulls all that together to determine kind of the final diagnosis and the plan from there. Uh, Certainly people can, and it's going to be different regionally. Um, I can only speak from, from my own experience being in you know, California and the USA, but people can also seek out assessment from a neuropsychologist individually if they're just concerned about their thinking skills, you know, or they could ask their neurologist or doctor for a referral if they think, okay, I know that sometimes people, you know, about half, half the time people with Parkinson's do start getting some sort of uh, cognitive impairment. And I think that I'm noticing, you know, my, maybe my word finding slipping or I'm just unsure, uh, default to asking for help, you know, try to figure out if there's a way for you to get assessed for that. One of the things that's good about the type of testing we do is it helps to take the guesswork out of things because there are changes that happen with, with aging. You know, you do slow down with aging. You do have a little bit more word finding difficulty. Some of these things we already talked, we already talked about, but it shouldn't be causing you significant problems in your day to day life, but it can be freaky. You know, when you know that you have Parkinson's 
and there's something's changing. Is it because it's a Parkinson's or not? That's where this type of assessment comes in. We can look at the the scores, see how you're doing in comparison to where you should be for your age and, you know, to what pattern it follows. And that can help us say, okay, this is this you're you're actually doing quite well. Your Parkinson's isn't causing cognitive impairment. You're just freaking yourself out. Something like that. And what are those tests like? Yeah, they're um they're interesting. They're all they're all a bit different. Um Depending on where you go, they're, they're going, there's going to be a different, we call it like a battery of tests. So you're going to get a different battery of tests depending on where you go. Um, usually it's a longer experience. So we, at my practice, we have a pretty nice and tight protocol that we use where we combine different tests to get all the information that we need. Our whole process usually takes about three hours and it's like in a single day. So you like meet, go through about, a, about an hour of interview and then two hours of testing, though that can be longer or shorter depending on the particular case. But you're going to be doing things like, um, so memory tests, you're going to have somebody remember a list of words and then you're going to see, can they rec- remember those words after a short delay or after a long delay? Um, if they can't remember the words, can they at least recognize them when they hear them? You know, if you say some words that were on the list, some words that were not, will they be able to tell the difference between them? Uh, there's going to be differences in how people perform on tests like that. If they have Alzheimer's versus Parkinson's versus, you know, no cognitive issues at all, uh, versus depression, we can kind of find those patterns. So certainly memory tests and for basically everything, you're going to do a visual version and a, um, a verbal version of it. So, you know, having you remember a list of words versus having you remember some shapes and pick them out later. So memory stuff is pretty straightforward. Um, you'll also do tests of executive functioning. So having to do some, some tests of multitasking where you kind of switch back and forth between different demands. Um, some tests that are looking at uh, if, if judgment is an issue, asking you questions related to judgment. Definitely you'll be doing reasoning things like looking at IQ, your intelligence and, and reasoning level. Um, lots of processing speed tasks that we talked about. These would be basic things, but having to do them under time pressure, they're all pretty short. You know, to be honest, all the tests are like five or 10 minutes long, but you just do a series of them one after another to get the whole range of functioning. Um, some places do more extensive assessments, especially if it's like a, a training clinic where they might be using um, graduate students. They might have them do more extensive testing, um, if, especially if it's part of research or anything like that. So you might be looking at several testing sessions, so maybe two, three hour sessions or something like that. But most of the time when you're in kind of a clinic situation, it's going to be um, a little bit tighter than that, more along the, the lines of what I was talking about. Right. Now, um, are there like exercises that you can help yourself in, you know, delaying the uh, cognitive erosion? So it's a, it's a little bit hard to say. What we do know is that um, like brain games like Lumosity yeah, and right. things like that are, while they're better than nothing, they're not effective in slowing down cognitive impairment. Um, they can provide kind of like little boosts to certain skills, but it's basically you're practicing that skill and getting better at it. Um, some of the newer research suggests that what's actually more helpful in, in kind of delaying, slowing down progression and also improving thinking skills is uh, outside of like the games and, and, and practicing memory exercises and things like that, but actually just learning skills in your life. Um, so there, there was an interesting study and I can't recall the citation. Sorry. I don't remember the, the researchers. It's probably fairly easy to look up, but, um, they, they did a test, uh, they did a research study where they looked at an elderly population and they split them up into one group that did brain training exercises. And then one group that learned a skill such as 
learning how to edit photos on the computer or learning how to crochet. And it turns out that people who learned a skill actually had a greater improvement to their cognitive abilities that lasted longer. Wow. Um, the theory is basically uh, in your brain, the cells that communicate back and forth are called neurons. And when you're young, you're constantly pumping out new neurons, which is why it's so easy to learn things and pick up new skills. As you get older, you still do, but to a much lesser extent. And it's, it's hard to, to pick things up in the same way. Uh, what you can do is you can always connect those neurons you have in different ways. And that's what's, what seems to happen when you learn new skills is you kind of forge a new pathway. And the more pathways you have, the more sort of interconnections you have, the brain tends to run a bit more efficiently. So definitely that's one thing that, that can be helpful there. Um, you know, the hobby type skills, you know, I, I, I try to talk to someone about what they're interested in. Maybe they were a pilot and they don't fly anymore. Well, have you ever built model airplanes? That would be a really good kind of parallel thing to do or a language, music, dance class, anything where you're, you're picking up a skill and trying to master it. That's really interesting. Now I got to make a list of things I want to learn how to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even things like, um, getting a board game, but one you haven't played before and like just trying to wrap your head around the rules for that. You're challenging your brain a bit. You know, you're challenging that executive functioning, challenging that memory. And, um, you don't necessarily have to master these things to see the benefit from it, but it's helpful to sort of treat your brain like a muscle and stretch it in those ways. So uh, is there any other practical advice that you find yourself giving to Parkinson's patients often? Um, just, you know, I think when you go through the assessment process, it's really helpful because you can look at someone's strengths and weaknesses and see what's going to be the most helpful advice for them. Um, a lot of people will be like, well, should I be driving anymore? And, you know, that that depends. It depends on how slow the processing speed is, depends on other factors. But uh, naturally, what you're going to do is you're going to start to adjust. If you can drive still, you're probably going to be driving a bit slower. And that comes down to physics. You know, when things come at you faster, you have less reaction time. When they come at you slower, you have more reaction time. So just sort of going with the flow of that, adjusting things to, to help fit with that while still challenging yourself. Um, you know, it, it's, it's easy for people early on in the stages to kind of be a little bit, uh, I don't want to say lazy, but there's not, there aren't a lot of major issues that are happening yet. So they're not going to be super active in trying to do something about it, but, you know, getting into fitness classes, finding new hobbies, all these things that are good for you. They're going to be a little bit more complacent about that until it starts to take hold a bit more. I think earlier on, the better. So often there's like kind of a a little spike initially with the diagnosis where like, oh, holy crap, I have Parkinson's. And then it dips down, you just kind of live your life. And then you start to have difficulties and you circle back to what can I do about this? So just sort of establishing things early on that would be be helpful habits, routines, things like that are are good. Great. Anything I'm missing? Mm, I guess. So so you mentioned that you also mentioned uh, the psychological side, like more the emotional side. Um, you know, it's it's often that people who have uh, Parkinson's will get um, dement or not dementia, but um, that that does happen sometimes. But depression is what I was trying to say. Depression, anxiety, other psychological issues. Um, it, it seems to be that there's kind of a combination of factors. Like one, it sucks to have Parkinson's, and that's depressing. <laughs> For sure. Uh, another is that you know the the neurological changes that happen seem to lend itself toward that especially with things slowing down. Uh, it's hard to be motivated when you're working an uphill battle for everything. So, you know, if it, as soon as there are, there are concerns and if you're having a hard time with it, I think it would be worth seeing a therapist or a psychologist. Um, 
you don't have to be diagnosed with a psychological disorder to benefit from therapy necessarily, uh, especially if it's sort of like, okay, I'm having a hard time adjusting to this. You can go to therapy for a relatively short amount of time, a few weeks, a month, a couple months, and just learn some skills, some coping skills to help deal with anxiety or depression, some things to keep in mind. And that's sort of like a tune-up that will keep you going for a while. Do you feel people are more open today to psychological uh, counseling than they used to be? You know, um, it depends on the population we're talking about, like the age. You know, I, I, certainly there are cultural, gender, religious differences, all sorts of stuff that plays along with this. Um, I do still encounter, I mean, I, I work with a lot of older adults, a lot of people who are, you know, 60, 65 and older. And right now, still a lot of them, you know, I'll suggest therapy and they're like, what the heck are you talking about? Like, why would I like, like lay on a couch and talk about my mom? <laughs> you know, they'll, they'll think <laughs> about that sort of thing and, and they don't see how it might be useful. Um, you know, nowadays there, there certainly is that type of therapy. You know, you could have hardcore psychoanalysts who still operate very much like Freud did, but for the most part, people are a lot more solution focused. They're a lot more, um, the majority of therapists now are what are called cognitive behavioral therapists, which means they look at how your thinking interacts with your behavior, you know, so your interpretation or your assumption about a situation that's going to make you feel a certain way, um, which in turn is going to make you act a certain way. So kind of breaking down those patterns, helping you realize where you might be shooting yourself in the foot in terms of your interpretation of situations and, and having you, you know, use some tools to maybe counteract that a bit. So it's a lot more practical many times. So once I explain it in that way and sort of the way that I'm talking with you about it, people who are older tend to sometimes be more open to it. Um, but there still is, you know, especially among older generations, a, a stigma there. Younger people, it's a lot more common. You, you hear about it, talked about a lot more, especially if they're online, on social media and such. There's much less of a stigma for it. But still people do think that they need to be suffering bad in order to get therapy sometimes, which isn't always the case. Uh, Robert, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, my pleasure. So that is your extra dosage. As always, we're always very grateful to have Parkinson Canada as a partner for this podcast. And you can find more information at parkinson.ca. On the next episode of When Life Gives You Parkinson's. How's Becky doing? My husband's changing and um, it's scary. I hate that disease. And it was pretty easy to hate her because the disease lived in her. Yeah. And so she saw that that's where we were going. And that's not a good place. What do you think is the hardest part of what you're going through? A, a sense of loneliness. If it's just you and the person who has Parkinson's and that's it, you don't have any family members or friends or outside supports that are sort of seeing what's going on with you, that can be dangerous because you may not realize that you haven't been sleeping. You may not realize that you're sort of decompensating in these ways. But if you were to you know, have regular meetings with friends of yours or family members, they can go, whoa. Do you find that you have time for self-care? First, if, if you don't do that, you're going to end up probably being a bitter, resentful person. The joy offers you freedom and the... There isn't so much freedom in the dark moments, but there are lessons in them. Since I'm not currently in one of those dark moments, I can have that perspective. 
And that is your extra dosage. From Curious Cast, this is when life gives you Parkinson's. If you'd like to help spread the word, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free to this podcast. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. This is a simple way to spread the word and raise awareness for Parkinson's disease. Engage with us on social media. On Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, just look up at Parkinson's Pod or email us Parkinson's Pod at CuriousCast.ca. And of course, be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to all of our guests as well. With a big special thanks to Dr. Robert Duff from the Hardcore Self Help Podcast. He's Duff the Psych on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and at DuffThePsych.com. When Life Gives You Parkinson's is written and hosted by me, Larry Gifford, and Nikki Reitmeyer. Dila Velazquez is our story producer and sound design by Rob Johnston. Keep positive. Keep exercising. And keep listening. We'll talk to you next time. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.